Our Father, we thank you that we can trust you. We live in this world that presents us many challenges, many things that make life challenging, make life difficult, both in our personal lives and in the broader world around us. But we thank you, Lord, that we can trust you. And I pray today as we open the scripture that you will increase our faith in you. Help us to trust you more so that then we will be able to honor you more, enjoy you more, and just find comfort and peace in you that this world can never give us. So, Lord, I, I lift up this time to you, praying that you will honor yourself in our hearts and in our midst in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. So as we get started this morning, I want to show you a picture that I took when my wife and I were hiking in the Smoky Mountains a number of years ago. It's some trees. Now, we see trees all the time, but these trees caught my attention to the point of taking a photo because of how they had blown over. These trees blew over and took their roots with them. These trees had such shallow roots. And it caught my attention, so I took that photo. I think about how when trees have shallow roots, they are very susceptible to being blown over in a strong wind. In order for trees to have the best chance of withstanding a storm, they need to have roots that run deep. Now, in the spirit of that idea, that metaphor of trees with deep roots, I, I think it's important for me as a pastor, for us as a church, to equip us all to have deep roots in our faith. Unfortunately, many Christians have roots that don't run very deep in their faith, including biblically. You know, we may know quite a bit about Jesus, and we know, you know, maybe a decent amount about the New Testament, but many Christians are very ignorant of what's actually there in the Old Testament and, and about the relevance of the Old Testament for our lives here today. Now picture it this way. Picture that Jesus and the New Testament are kind of like a tree that you see growing. And if that's the case, then the Old Testament is like the root system underneath the ground, providing the foundation and the nourishment to help what's in the New Testament, what's in the gospel, to really grow and to flourish. Now, to help us grow deeper roots in our faith, we're starting a new sermon series today that's called Father of Faith, The Life and Legacy of Abraham. Now, Abraham was a man who lived 4,000 years ago or so. I mean, that's a, that's a very, very long time ago. 4,000 years it would be easy to think, well, what happened back then doesn't really matter much to us today. But what we're going to see through the course of the series is that the life and the legacy of Abraham do have a very significant impact on our faith. What we're going to see is that in order to really understand and enjoy the storyline of the Bible and of the gospel, it is valuable to have a strong working knowledge of the life and legacy of Abraham. And so I invite you to turn in the Bible this morning to Romans chapter 4. Romans 4. If you did not bring a Bible, what would like to follow along, you can grab one from the pew and turn to page 1134. Now, if you know much about Abraham, you may be wondering, why are we turning to Romans? Because Abraham lived like back in the time of Genesis. We're in Romans because Abraham actually occurs a lot in the New Testament as well. I mean, you may think, yeah, he, he occurred back in the Old Testament. And in fact, majority of the sermon series will be camping out in the book of Genesis where the life of, of, of Abraham was recorded. 
We'll be walking through his life, throughout his life. But we're going to start and end this series in the New Testament because Abraham's name actually occurs 73 times in the New Testament. And that's kind of crazy, isn't it? 73 times the name of Abraham occurs in the New Testament, showing the ongoing relevance of Abraham for our lives and our faith. So we're beginning today in Romans. In the book of Romans, the Apostle Paul is giving an in-depth explanation of the gospel. In Romans 4, he's pointing to Abraham to help illustrate some key aspects of the gospel message. So I invite you to follow along Romans 4 as I start reading in verse 1. Paul writes, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now the first point I want to make today is that Abraham is our forefather in the faith. He's our forefather in the faith. Now, looking at verse 1, it says, What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather according to the flesh? Now, when you see that phrase about a forefather according to the flesh, in that context, it's talking specifically about Jewish people. Jewish people, especially those born into Jewish families, especially back in first century Israel, could trace their family lineage back to Abraham. That's why many Jews refer to him as Father Abraham. And he was not just some metaphorical father, kind of like the founding fathers of the United States are for us, because I doubt that any of us are actually directly descended from the founding fathers. Maybe you are. If so, you are a direct descendant. They are your um, you know, biological forefathers. But for the most part, when we talk about founding fathers of the United States, that's metaphorical. But when the Israelites talk about Abraham being their forefather, it's typically more biological. Abraham was, quite literally, a grandfather of theirs, albeit many generations removed. And in Jesus' day and in Paul's day, Abraham played a very significant role in the identity the Israelites had. Even in their reference to God, they called God at times the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now here in Romans 4, we're going to see that, God, that Abraham's fatherhood is not limited to Jews. He may be uh, an ancestor of theirs in the flesh, but in the faith, we all essentially can be children of Abraham. Because what we're going to see a little bit later in Romans 4 today is that people who are truly Abraham's children are those whose faith is in God through Jesus. So we're going to focus in on Romans. Remember, again, that Romans is about the gospel. So you may be wondering, why does Paul, as he's talking about the gospel, why is he talking about Abraham when Abraham lived some 2,000 years before Jesus? The gospel centers on Jesus. Why in the world is he talking about Abraham, who lived 2,000 years earlier? Well, the main reason is that Abraham illustrates that justification, or we could also say salvation, comes by faith not by works. In verse 2, Paul said, For if Abraham was justified by works, 
he has something to boast about. We're going to unpack this a little bit today. First of all, this word justified is a key word. The word justified is a legal term that means to declare something to be righteous. It means to be declared righteous. Again, it's a legal term. So if a person is on trial, perhaps they're, they're, they're charged with committing a crime of some sort, they're the defendant. If the judge or the jury declares that they are not guilty, they are being justified. The court is declaring that they are righteous. They, they are in the right. They are not in the wrong in that circumstance. And we use the term justified actually in a very similar sense. Sometimes uh, you may think, you know, um, of justifying yourself. And if you are trying to justify yourself, you're trying to provide an explanation to defend yourself to show that you are in the right on a certain thing. You're justifying yourself. You're showing you are righteous in that circumstance. Or if you talk about um, you're, you're trying to justify someone else's actions, they are justified in what they did in that circumstance, you're saying, you know what, they are in the right. They're not guilty for what they did in that circumstance. I think they were right. You are justifying them. And it's that same type of idea here, except Paul's key, key question is how is a person justified before God? If God is a judge... What would cause him to declare that a person is not guilty, but rather is righteous? That is Paul's key question. I want to point to an equation that describes how people typically think about this topic of justification and salvation. The common view of salvation is in this equation. It's faith plus works equals salvation. This is how many, many people think salvation works. That, that faith plus works equals salvation. They view it kind of as two wings on an airplane. Faith is one wing, works is the other. You know how airplanes work, they need the two wings, don't they? I mean, if I were to go to the Milwaukee airport and board an airplane to fly somewhere, and I get on that plane, I look out the window and see that one wing is missing, I'm going to be alarmed, to say the least. I'm going to be wanting to get off that plane as quickly as possible because the plane is not going to fly with only one wing. Many people view salvation kind of like it's an airplane with two wings. You have the faith wing and you have the works wing. You need them both. And people think, you know, if, the, if I have both faith and works, then the airplane of my life will be able to fly me safely to salvation. That is a very common view. And when people have this type of view, then what happens is they end up emphasizing the works side of that equation. They focus on their works. I think about how through the years I have asked hundreds of people a question that goes something like this. If, if you were to die or imagine that when you do die, you're standing before God and he asks you why he should let you into heaven, what would you say? I've asked that question to hundreds of people. I don't think God's literally going to ask people that question, but it's a good diagnostic tool to help understand someone's view of salvation. I found that the vast majority of people to whom I asked that question, probably 75, 80% point to their works. They point to things that they have done that they think, you know, those things that I have done will justify me in God's sight. They may say something like, you know, I've always tried to, and then you fill in the blank with things like going to church, living a good life, helping other people out. They may say, you know, I've never 
And again, you kind of fill in the blank of things they, they've never done. The most common answer they give is, I've never murdered someone. And I think that's kind of funny, in a sense, to think that the bar that God would use for getting into heaven is never murdering someone. I think, you know, that, that feels like an awfully low bar. But then that would also exclude anyone who has murdered someone from getting to heaven. Anyway, I mean, these are the things that people point to. They say, I do my best, and then they fill in the blank about what they do their best in doing. But these types of answers all revolve around the works that people do. In verse 2 of Romans 4, it says, For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. Now, the common Jewish view, remember, Abraham was a big character in Jewish heritage and in Jewish identity. The common Jewish view of Abraham was that he had such a close, special relationship with God because he did so many great things. He had so many good works in his favor. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. And the idea of boasting about works, I think, is part of the attraction of works in our lives. That when, when we are measuring ourselves by our works, then, especially if we think that contributes to salvation, then we feel like we have done something good. We have done something to help earn salvation. We have performed well. I think we're also drawn to works because works are more easily measurable than something like faith. They're more visible. And on top of that, measuring by works is how the world works. I think about a student in school. You know, if a student works hard and does well in school, then they're probably going to get good grades. They're going to be advanced to the next grade at the end of the school year. And when, they, you know, when it comes time, if they want to go to college, they're probably going to qualify for some good scholarships. Why? Because they did good work in school. You think about if someone is trying out for a sports team and they do well, they're probably going to make the team. If someone works hard and does well in their job, they're probably going to get a promotion or get a raise. This is how our world works. And then we easily import that mentality into the idea of salvation, our relationship with God, thinking, well, if we work hard, if we do the right things, then God will be pleased with us. Now let's go back again to this passage, because it gives a different perspective. It says, for if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? It says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now that quote I just read in verse 3, it actually comes from Genesis 15, verse 6. We'll come to that again in a few weeks in our series. But Genesis 15, 6 is a key when it says, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. Now righteousness is this right standing before God, and it came to Abraham not because of his good works, but because he believed in and trusted God. He had faith in God. And to illustrate the importance of this faith in God, the importance over and against the works, Paul, a little bit later in Romans chapter 4, provides a sequence in Abraham's life to illustrate the fact that it's faith that God is evaluating most importantly in terms of a person's justification and salvation. Look with me down in Romans 4, picking up in verse 9. We'll read through verse 12. Paul says, We say that faith was counted to Abraham as righteousness. How then was it counted to him? Was it before or after he had been circumcised? Let's pause there for a second. Paul, or, or not Paul. 
God had given Abraham the command to be circumcised as a way to set him apart from other people, set him apart for God. Abraham obeyed God in that command, even though it would have been obviously painful for Abraham. Now looking back now to verse 10, it says, Was Abraham declared to be righteous before or after he had been circumcised? It was not after, but before he was circumcised. He received the sign of circumcision as a seal of the righteousness that he had by faith while he was still uncircumcised. Their purpose was to make him the father of all who believe without being circumcised, so that righteousness would be counted to them as well, and to make him the father of the circumcised, who are not merely circumcised, but who also walk in the footsteps of the faith that our father Abraham had before he was circumcised. So for Abraham, being circumcised was a major step of obedience. God told him to do that, and he did it. It was a good work. But Paul is pointing to the sequence here, saying, you know, Abraham was already declared righteous before he was circumcised, before he did that good work. He was justified by his faith. He was declared righteous in God's sight by his faith. And then the obedient actions came afterwards. And this points to a different equation. This is a more biblical view of salvation. So the biblical view of salvation in an equation format is that faith equals salvation plus works. Notice that works has jumped to the other side of the equation. Faith equals salvation plus works. Works is still part of the story, but it does not contribute directly to a person's salvation. Works then is an outcome of faith. It's part of, uh, of displaying salvation at work in a person's life. It's a consequence. It's a result that when a person has true faith in Christ, it manifests itself in good works. And the motive changes because now good works is not done as a way of trying to earn God's favor or to merit salvation. Instead now, works is done with an attitude of gratitude. Saying, God, thank you for what you've done. I see that your way is best. I want to follow you, Lord. The whole format uh, and the mentality behind works changes because no longer is it trying to earn our salvation. Instead, faith alone is what leads to salvation. Now, I do want to point out one other thing from verse 11 here before we go back to our main passage. It's that Abraham became father not just to the Jews, but it says to all who believed. This shows that if anyone has faith in God through Jesus, Abraham is our spiritual father. Okay, now let's go back to our main passage. We're going to now move on to verses 4 and 5 where it says, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but as his due. And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. So what this is saying is that salvation is a gift. It's not like a paycheck. Because you think about a paycheck. If you work a job, you know, you put in hours, you perform some duties and some responsibilities, hopefully well, you get a paycheck. That paycheck is something that you have earned. It's something you deserve on the basis of the work that you invested. 
But Paul is saying here in verses 4 and 5, that is not how salvation works. Salvation is not like a paycheck. It's not like a wage. Instead, it is a gift that we are given freely. And this comes especially out clearly in verse 5. He says, To the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Now there's a phrase there, especially if we aren't familiar with with how salvation works in God's sight, there's a phrase that is very jarring when it says that God justifies the ungodly. God justifies the ungodly. What that means is that God looks and sees people who are ungodly, who are undeserving, whose lives are messed up, who may not be doing a whole lot to try to please him. They have sin in their lives, and God looks at them, and he declares that they are righteous, that they are not guilty, that they are acquitted, that they are forgiven. And that doesn't seem right, does it? It doesn't seem fair that that happens. And to be sure, it isn't fair. But it's grace. This is the core of the gospel. That we have a God who justifies the ungodly. And he does so through Jesus. Jesus came to this world ultimately to go to a cross to die, to pay the death penalty we deserve for our sins. And then when we come to faith in Jesus, a trade takes place where he takes our sin upon himself and pays the penalty for it. And in turn, we receive his righteousness credited credited to our spiritual accounts. I mean, it's an amazing uh, trade for us. It's great news because we can never do enough good works to earn God's favor. We can never do enough good works to earn salvation. I mean, you think about the, the, the best person who's done the most good works in world history. I mean, besides Jesus, he, he doesn't count in this. But try to think in your mind, who, who is the person in my life or in world history who's done a ton of good works? That If anyone deserves to earn salvation, they are the person. I mean, I think maybe Mother Teresa, someone like that who sacrificed a lot for the benefit of others. But even someone like Mother Teresa cannot and has not done enough good works to earn God's favor. And Paul is trying to drive that point home over and over and over here in the early chapters of Romans. In fact, our passage began in Romans 4, verse 1. And if you back up just nine verses, you will come to Romans 3.23. You know what Romans 3.23 says? It says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. All have sinned. Paul's point that he is trying to, to drive into our minds is there is no performance plan for heaven. There is no way that we can earn our salvation through religious activities or good works. In God's court, we are all guilty. But that God is one who will justify the ungodly because of his grace. He does so through Jesus. So in Romans 4 here, it is clear that we receive the gift of salvation by trusting in Jesus, not by our good works. We receive salvation by trusting in Jesus. And I recognize that, that a lot of what we've been talking about today can sound just like this deep, kind of abstract theology. And it can feel like, you know, what's its relevance? 
to my life. I recognize that this message in this passage is not one that is, is very humorous. There's not a lot of chuckling and laughter in this topic. I mean, it's a pretty heavy topic. But it's also one that is incredibly important and relevant for our lives. Let me give you an example from my life of its relevance uh, to all of our lives. I grew up going to church pretty often because that's what my family did. I imagine that many of you grew up in families kind of like mine where, you know, you're going to church because, you know, that's what we do. And so I grew up going to church, but I didn't really care much about God. I didn't think much about God. I didn't really care much for church. I wasn't that against it. I just didn't really know what it had to do with my life, didn't care that much. I called myself a Christian because, after all, I went to church. And I knew I wasn't a Jew or, or I wasn't Hindu, wasn't Buddhist, something like that. So I, I was a Christian, must be, I thought. I got to college. Pretty soon after I got to college, I stopped going to church. It wasn't intended to be an act of rebellion. It was just I didn't see the purpose of church. To me, it was just primarily a social outlet. And I didn't need something like that, especially on a Sunday morning where I had to get up early. So I stopped going to church. And then late in my second year of college... A friend stopped by, by, by my dorm room. He was in one of my classes. He stopped by. We talked for a little while. And he asked me a question. He said, Brandon, when you die, imagine that you are standing before God. And he asks you why he should let you into heaven. What would you say? And I will tell you that I have never thought of that question before that point. I never really considered that type of topic. But I did give an answer. I said, well, I've tried to live, live a good life. I haven't done anything too bad. You know, I've gone to church pretty often. I try to, try to help other people out. It's that classic response. What was I focusing on to try to be right in God's eyes? My works. My friend went on to explain the same thing that I said a minute ago about all have sinned, all have fallen short of the glory of God. I began to realize that rather than deserving heaven, I actually deserve Hell. And that was not good news. But then my friend began to talk about this word grace. He actually asked me if I knew what the word grace meant. And I had no idea. The only thing that came to my mind were ballerinas and figure skaters. And the reason is I had heard them described as graceful. I mean, you know, you see figure skaters in the Olympics. They're described as graceful. But really, I, I, grace was not a word that I used. My friends didn't use that word grace much that I could recall. I didn't really know what grace meant, but my friend described that grace is an undeserved gift that God gives us through Jesus. That Jesus came to this earth, he died on a cross to pay the penalty we deserve for our sins. He was resurrected. He won the victory over sin, evil, and death. And we can share in that victory. We can receive a gift of salvation, of forgiveness of our sins, of new life with God, if we just confess to God that, you know what, we have sinned, we can't do enough to earn God's favor, that we need Jesus, that we want to live no longer for ourselves but for him. For me, I, you know, I'd grown up going to church. I, I picked up a little bit through the years from Sunday school and from sermons. And so it's kind of like dots were connecting, light bulbs were going off in my head as my friend is sharing all these things. And I took a week or so just to process all this stuff. And I came to that point where I realized, I do need Jesus. I do need a Savior. I surrendered my life to him. I came to faith in him. I said, Jesus, I need you. I can't do this on my own. And that was a turning point in my life. God has transformed my life in so many ways since then. 
And what that shows is the stuff we're talking about here in Romans chapter 4, the stuff about the gospel that Paul's unpacking and using Abraham as an illustration, that is incredibly relevant in our lives. Yes, the book of Romans is deep. He's doing a deep dive into the theology of the gospel. It's incredibly relevant for our lives. So I would encourage you, if you look at your life and you realize, no, up to this point, I've been depending, at least in part, on my good works or my religious activities to merit favor in God's sight in order to to get me salvation, get me to heaven, get me in a relationship with him. Maybe this is that day that you need to come to that point of recognizing, you know, my works are not ever going to be enough. Instead, I need to just come to faith in Jesus and trust him. I mean, if you do that today or this week or the coming months, I would encourage you to share that with someone else. Maybe someone who brought you to church or, or perhaps even me or one of the other Freedom staff. It's good to share that with others. We'd love to walk with you as you grow in your own relationship with God because there's truly nothing that compares to the greatness of knowing Jesus. And these are incredibly important topics. So we began today in the New Testament looking at an aspect of the ongoing relevance of Abraham. Next week, we're going to rewind back to the book of Genesis to dive into the biography of Abraham. I don't know about you, but I love biographies. I like biographies for many reasons. It helps me understand a person's life better. helps me to see you know, how they influence what's happening now. It helps to put some flesh on truth. I mean, biographies can be really exciting. So I'm excited about this series. As we look at Abraham's biography, we're going to see it's full of adventure and suspense. There are times of great triumph. There are times in Abraham's life of miserable failure. There are stressful situations. And there is definitely some humor in Abraham's story as well. There are going to be times when we say, Abraham, what in the world were you thinking here? There are going to be other times that we look and say, wow, Abraham, how in the world did he do that? That was incredibly gutsy. That was impressive. And along the way, we're going to have the opportunity to grow deeper roots in our faith. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you that you give us scripture, that you have worked through men and women down through history, including people like Abraham and his wife Sarah, to teach us what it looks like to live a life of faith. Lord, I pray that in the coming weeks that we will grow deeper roots in our faith that will help us to withstand the storms that may come our way in our life. And Lord, I pray for all of us that we will be trusting in Jesus alone, by faith alone, for our salvation. That we will not, not be deluded into the idea that our works are going to contribute to our salvation. Because Lord, that's not going to work. You reveal that to us in Scripture. Please help us all to trust Jesus with all all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We pray these things in his name.